Lovely. Right. So, Key, welcome to the show. Um, you are the CTO of Session. So, yeah, thanks for joining me today, ma'am. Nice to be here, Josh. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, yeah, why don't you just start by telling people what Session is? So Session is a messaging application um, at its core. It's actually originally a fork of the Signal messaging application, which I'm sure a few of your um, viewers would have heard about. Um, Basically, the the core tenets or um, the core selling points of Session is that it's an anonymity-focused messenger. So the three things that it kind of does differently from other messaging applications is it doesn't use a phone number. Um, it onion routes all of your messages, which means your IP address, um, which is kind of like your digital identifier on the internet, isn't exposed. Um, and then also it's decentralized, so it doesn't have a central server um, like messengers like uh, Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp um, do, and even Signal has a um, centralized messenger too. So those are kind of our three differentiating points, and we really make a focus on trying to make the user as anonymous and secure as possible when they're using um, session. So yeah, at its core, it's a it's a mobile or it's a messaging application that you can download on desktop and um, Android and iOS. It just helps you maintain your anonymity and security when you're messaging other people. Mm. So what you're telling me is that some of these other apps like WhatsApp are not protecting your anonymity, and they may, yeah, your 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 data and your identity might be out there for for people to be able to tell and and see. So yeah. Because uh, I was under the, well, I mean, I'm obviously not that naive, but like in, in my head, at least, like when I'm sending a message on WhatsApp, that's safe. Like no one can read that, but that's obviously not quite the reality. Like what's what's going on there? So there's a, there's a few things with WhatsApp um, specifically on the anonymity front, like because we try and separate anonymity and security into kind of two different boxes on the anonymity front. The thing about WhatsApp that is probably the most damaging is that it uses your phone number to connect you with your friends. And we don't just use our phone numbers um, for our messaging applications these days. We put them into so many different services. So like basically whenever you're signing up for something, you have to give out your phone number these days, which means there's thousands of databases which have your phone number in them connected to different things. So one might be you know, you signed up for this service at this particular time. Um, and if if any of those are leaked, there's potentially like compromising um, aspects which could come out. So, you know, if you use your phone number to sign up or if you use the, that same phone number for your business, for example, then if someone knows that your phone number is registered for WhatsApp and you're sending all of these messages to other people, they can look up your phone number against like a business registry and find out the person that you actually are. Now, that might not necessarily be the worst thing for WhatsApp because WhatsApp is kind of mostly used with your friends. But if you're trying to maintain anonymity online and have essentially like a pseudo anonymous identity, um, you know, like you have on Twitter, all of these different Discord and all of these different services, you might not want to have a connection to your actual person. Um, And because we use our phone number in so many different other locations, it's really hard to keep... um, your real person separated from your online identity when you use a phone number to register an account. So that's kind of the first point on anonymity. On the security side, um, you know, you were saying like, can WhatsApp read my messages? Um, it's a bit questionable with WhatsApp. They have implemented this. Well, so what's basically happened was originally WhatsApp messages were only encrypted to the server. So the WhatsApp central server, and then the 
WhatsApp server could read those messages if they wanted to. They said that they weren't doing that. Um, but then Signal came along and they developed this protocol called the Signal protocol, which helps you encrypt messages um, from end to end. So it's not actually encrypting for the server, it's encrypting for the other person who you're sending to and they decrypt on their end. Um, now, WhatsApp have said that they've implemented that, but the thing is they're a closed source software. So we can't actually verify whether they have um, implemented any of the encryption, which they say that they're, in, they're putting out there. That's the good thing with open source software is if anyone wants to check that they're implementing the encryption that they say that they're implementing, you can have security researchers and technical people pull down the code and read the lines of code where the encryption is actually happening. In WhatsApp, it's much more difficult to work out whether that actually is happening or to what level that that's happening at. So, you know, in the best case scenario where WhatsApp has implemented the signal protocol um, properly, then they can't actually read your messages. It's more about the metadata that's being passed between users. Um, but in, in the worst case scenario where WhatsApp's kind of lying about what they've done inside of their application, they might not have implemented the signal protocol correctly. And, or they made a, maybe just made a bug or they, had, they hadn't made a mistake and there's a bug in there, right? Um, and it's not doing what it's set out to do. Um, so we don't really know which one of these it is. But if you're optimistic about what they're doing, and I think, like you know, if I was to take take a bet, I would say that they have implemented the signal protocol properly. Um, but I think like leaving that up to trust um, with them is potentially not the best idea because we know, you know, what Facebook, which owns WhatsApp. You know, we, we know what their reputation is, and it's not generally the best for user privacy and, and data controls. So, yeah, <laughs> that's on the on those two fronts, the privacy and anonymity front. Yeah, I mean, the um, yeah, I haven't written a book that 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 went in quite a lot of depth about the scale to which Facebook lied about data leaks um, in their past. Uh, yeah, makes me skeptical, like, makes me just vaguely skeptical about yeah it's not something i would want i'd go trusting them on basically but yeah and actually that that idea of a bug um being spotted because a, um, a piece of software was open source is never something i'd considered i'd never thought of it like a a feature in that sense i'd, I'd always thought <laughs> of it yeah that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it uh, maybe we'll go back to like closed and open source software uh, in a little bit. But um, the thing I want to ask you there, so you said that about the, the metadata that was getting the potentially passed, like even if they have end-to-end -end encrypted it, like what what is that that they're able to see even if it is end-to-end um, -end encrypted with the, with the signal protocol as they claim? So um, I think in, in WhatsApp, in WhatsApp's case, there is something that they implemented in Signal called Sealed Sender, which basically hides the sender of a message. I'm not sure if they've implemented this in WhatsApp, but if, say that they haven't implemented that, then the WhatsApp servers would see the person that you're sending to, so their phone number, the person that you're sending to. They obviously see your IP address plus your phone number because you're the one sending the message. They'll see stuff like the message size, um, when the message is sent, um, the IP address of the recipient, which will give them kind of the broad location of the recipient as well. Um, and possibly other, inf they would see device information probably as well, um, the devices that people are on. The thing is with like that much information, like course, you have like course location, 
um, like the phone number of the person, which is probably going to link them back to their real world ident identity, um, the time that the message was sent, um, and then who sent it to them. That's a lot of information that you can use to build a picture on someone. And Facebook is not at all um, coy about giving all of that data to the government, like in terms of like there's the legal request route, like where, you know, if there's a subpoena against you, Facebook will literally just give you the, give um, the government like the entire log, like logs of your chats. They won't be able to give the content necessarily, but they'll be able to give all of that metadata of the mobile phone numbers that you were talking to. Um, but then there's also potential that they have some sort of cooperation with, you know, we saw this with Prism that, um, the NSA was deeply kind of rooted inside of private companies and gathering data that way as well. Um, so there's the potential for that as well, just because they have access to that data. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a honeypot that um, attackers or governments would want access to. Yeah, I'm just pulling that up actually for people to be able to see <laughs> because um, I think it's really crucial actually that they understand like actually what, what is happening here. That Prism is actually, yeah. yeah, I just just wanted to pull up this article about Prism for people. I'm sorry, I can't share it right now. I'm just there. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, the, the Prism stuff was crazy. They, they literally had um, in the data centers, like I think in Verizon and AT&T, there would actually be like a co-located room where the NSA would feed all of the cables that came in for like a particular internet service provider into a room where the NSA would sit. And then the cables would come out the other end, right? Like, and then they would continue that journey. So they literally had, were a man, like in the middle, that was watching every single packet of data that was flowing across some of these ISPs, I believe. Like, so yeah, it's yeah, it was crazy. I mean, so yeah, so I just got one quote up here. I got to read this out because this is this is mind blowing to me. It's like Google cares deeply about the security of our users' data. We disclose users' data to government in accordance with the law, and we review all such requests carefully. From time to time, people allege that we have created a government backdoor into our systems, but Google does not have a backdoor for the government to access private user data. And then it turns out that's basically what they had. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, some of these companies aren't aren't exactly trustworthy in in this sense. But this sort of brings me to like the next question is like, shouldn't we all be happy that our, our corporate overlords should have such, um, you know, fantastic technology to keep watch over us? <laughs> you know, why in, in sessions opinion, do is are you, you know, providing this this kind of service for yeah, private end to end messaging? I think, um, like, I always kind of take a slightly abstract view here i mean there's there's obvious ones that you could just say well it's not it's not their right to be able to you know view everything that's going on between private individuals but i think like privacy is very important for the creation of new ideas um and and forming new ideas in in people's heads because it's you know if you think about the history like the history of your thoughts you know personally like over you know 20 30 years you would have had a lot of different things that you thought at the time were good ideas that you now think are really bad ideas, right? <laughs> and it's only through it's only through the process of like kind of talking to other people that we realize that some of the ideas or, or discovering new information that we find out that some of our ideas that we held previously were not the best ideas in practice. And having privacy to explore those spaces is really important to be able to form those points of view because if it 
you know, if it comes out like, you know, in 20 years time, oh, he thought this at this particular time, which means, you know, he's, you know, he's racist or he's sexist or, you know, he doesn't care about this group of people or he doesn't care about that group of people. Like it can really hit anyone on the spectrum left or right. Um, just because at that time you were forming your ideas and you didn't actually understand the full scope of things. Um, that could, that can be really damaging to creating new ideas. You know, we, we need to kind of have, um, these spaces where we can explore ideas without those being tied back to our identity necessarily. And I think privacy is really privacy and anonymity is really important to maintain that creation of new ideas. So that's kind of my slightly abstract answer, you know, to that. No, no, I mean, it's a good answer, man. I, 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 I definitely agree with, with, um, with the, the principles. Um, the one, but the one argument that I hear, right, or like tossed out, and I'm, I'm not like particularly fond of this argument, but I see it get tossed around in in any of these spaces where there's there's like a conflict at the minute between like government oversight and regulation and privacy. Like there's, it's it's the same argument that get you got used about about cryptocurrency, for example, to begin with, especially Bitcoin. It's like, aren't you helping criminals, like? You know, aren't you just providing a way for, you know, money launderers and, you know, human traffickers to communicate anonymously? Like, why should, you know, should we really have that ability to communicate privately? I think, like, when you look at who who is actually using the messaging app, like, session, like, I, I mean, we can't say exactly because we don't really know. Um, but we do interact with session users every day. Like people will come to us um, through session and tell us their story and um, stuff like that. And from what I've heard, the majority of users are just normal people um, in normal countries, just trying to get back some of their privacy after hearing about stuff like the NSA, like prism where they were collecting data on mass. Like they are like, they're not like, you know, dark CD criminals trying to do, um, you know, drug deals online or whatever, like, uh, you know, I, from what I've seen, it's mainly just normal people. So I think like, you know, this argument doesn't even really hold up on the basis of itself. Like if you were to look at like other an anonymity providing technologies like Tor as well, like, yes, there is um, a portion of Tor that is used to sell drugs online. But if you look at the traffic, um, you know, by what is routed on Tor, it's like 99% of it is exiting into the normal internet and like 1% of it is exiting into the internal like onion addresses. And then you would say maybe like 10% of that traffic is actually illegal traffic. So you're like, they're trying to kind of demonize the 99% of legitimate users by taking the probably 1% or the 0.1% of users who misuse the anonymity that they've been given. Um, and say that that's oh it's all all the ninety nine percent are are the are this like sub one percent. I mean, it's just not a very good argument when you look at the technical um, aspect of it, from what I can see at least. No, I mean, I, I'm not here to say that I I buy the argument. I mean, it's like no, no, it's like what do you use you cash? <gasps> that's what drug dealers use. <laughs> like you know, I mean, it's like it's like did you know that? Uh, yeah, criminals used to use phone lines as well. It's like, how, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and criminals use US dollars as well. You know, we haven't stopped, you know, sending those around the world. Yeah, I mean, that's that's no way to talk about Congress. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
let's go back a little bit to to signal and and the fork um from signal so when like when did like signal be- sort of start up and become possible um as a company and as a as a like as a piece of technology and maybe maybe you weren't around back then but i'm hoping you can at least give me some idea and then like why did session fork from um from signal like what was the you know what was the beef about <laughs> so uh signal started as text secure and that was the original app name um and i believe it was an android only thing for quite a while um They've developed their software. I think they're probably about nine, nine or ten years old now. They're they're they've been around for a while and they've developed um, a lot over that period of time. Um, and kind of originally, all kind of based around this idea of like OTR, which is like off the record messaging, um, which provides like certain properties to um, the messaging protocol. Um, I mean, we have come in like um, session or uh, like session or originally it was called Loki Messenger has come in much earlier than that. I think we're getting to be maybe two and a half years old now or three years old. Um, it's not really that we had any beef um, with the signal guys. Um, we hadn't really worked actively with them on their code base or anything like that. We just saw that they had really good technology and we knew that they weren't going to, uh, you know, decentralize their entire network and add in onion routing i don't think because it didn't se- it didn't seem to me like there was any appetite for that on the signal side of things i mean they were still trying to work through like you know getting st- stopping the use of phone numbers like and they still haven't done that so i think they're pretty they're pretty big like they're pretty they're much bigger than us um but that means that i think they're a little bit more slow moving than us um and they're trying to cater to, I think, a little bit of a larger user base than we are as well. Not to say that um, like Session doesn't have wide application as well. I think it does. Um, but I think they're trying to get people to sw- switch from WhatsApp uh, to Signal. Uh, and that experience of like, okay, you have a phone number in one and you have a phone number in the other, it's like a much easier to understand rather than you know, kind of generating a long, a long key. Um, and, and migrating that way um, and not having any of your existing contacts in there as well. So, I mean, it wasn't so much that we had a beef with them. It was that we wanted to build a technology that leveraged some of their encryption protocols. Um, and we didn't think that they were going to be particularly happy to like merge a massive, like, you know, change back into their um, source code. So for people maybe who have been listening to this conversation and going, okay, I kind of get what you mean and this all makes sense, but like, what is encryption? Like, what are you doing there? Um, yeah, what is what is what is encryption essentially in in this context? Yeah, so essentially, you like with encryption, you're essentially taking something that's plain text, and plain text basically just means that you know it's human readable. Like, you know, you can say "hello key," like that's a plain text um, message, and you apply a key to it. So you'll generate usually a key. There's a few ways that you can do that, um, and then by kind of um, interacting with the key, you produce a ciphertext. And the ciphertext, the idea behind it is that instead of saying hello key, it's like a jumbled up mess of um, different characters where it's not, it doesn't make any sense to the original message. And it's impossible to go back from the ciphertext to the plain text without the key that was used to encrypt that message. 
Um, so that's kind of the basic anatomy of, um, of encryption in this sense. So essentially like we're taking your message that you create on your phone and instead of sending that plain text message directly to the person that you want to speak to, we first like jumble it up using a key and then we send it to the person who you're speaking to. And then on their end, as long as they have that key that was used for it, it gets a little bit trickier with asymmet uh, asymmetric encryption, but as, as long as they have the key, the proper key, then they can um, decrypt that information and read it as, a, as if it was plain text, but no one in between can read that ciphertext. Okay. So, <laughs> at least you may, you may, this may make you laugh, right? Yeah. I don't know if you've heard about this horrendous idea that the UK government had at one point, um, a few years back to attempt to ban encryption. And actually, I think, I think they're still, I think they're still pushing it actually, cause I'm just Googling to see when the last time they were talking about it was, um, and there is, yeah, there's articles here from the start of this year when they were talking about it. So they must be uh, still, you know, thinking about this idea. Like, is this, is this realistic? Like, is that, is that just being stupid? Like, is it possible to ban encryption at all? Like conceptually? Well, it's actually, it's interesting because um, when the first kind of asymmetric encryption came out in the, I think it was the seventies or the eighties, um, the US government kind of had a similar reaction um, to these encryption standards. And they tried to specifically use like export control laws mm. to say that you couldn't like export cryptography to other countries. If it was, if it was sufficiently strong cryptography, it couldn't be exported from the United States to other countries. And I think like there was a court case about it. And I think ultimately the U S government lost, um, and they worked out that like the freedom, like freedom of speech stuff in the US was also covered like cryptographic schemes and stuff like that. So I, I don't think it really makes much sense. It's really hard to enforce as well for like uh, for a law enforcement agency to like ban encryption um, just because like they're mathematical kind of algorithms. They're not like physical goods that they can track like it would be very difficult to be like saying we're going to ban piracy. Well, you know, te like technically it's legal, but you know, a lot of people still do it. So I think, you know, it, it wouldn't have much of an effect if some, if some smaller government came along and, you know, like the UK came along and said, oh, we're banning it outright. It would be extremely difficult to enforce. And then you have to consider its impact on traditional, like, the banking system, right? Like all of that's built on top of cryptography, like the traditional banking system. So there needs to be some sort of like, they need to apply it to specific industries, I suppose. Like we'll ban encryption for messaging applications, not banning encryption everywhere because literally the entire internet uses, you know, HTTPS, which is encryption. So you'd have to ban the entire internet before you did that. Like, you know. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, I actually, yeah. I, I, I can tell that people are going to be chuckling at your comment about a smaller government and the UK, because, you know, we like to think ourselves is quite important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've, uh, you've definitely shrunk a little bit since uh, the colonial days, you know? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, oh, but we're going to take that back post-Brexit. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, to be fair, like to, to them, I did discover recently that, um, since Brexit, like the UK has had, had like one of the highest wage growths in the G7, if not the highest, which was, 
I was like, okay, well, I mean, it's not completely fallen apart yet. So, <laughs> look, I can't, I can't be talking any shit because uh, I live in Australia, so you know, I'm directly responsible for you know the U- UK. That's that's my blood, you know. <laughs> yeah, in an well, abstract I mean, sense. And do you know the? You, do you know Tim Dillon, the comedian? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you hear like the trouble he got into about like he went on a huge rant about Australians? About, no, about how like the, they he's like, look, they're all of course they're all sitting around during the lockdowns. If if someone asks them to stay at home and grill, they're not gonna ever like stop. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he started talking about how um, you know, it's the, the, the problem with the country is that you're descended from the criminals, but not the good ones, just the ones that got caught. <laughs> <laughs> oh which, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. <laughs> Lots of lots of bread thieves, you know, like minor petty thieves amongst Australians, I think. Yeah. Although, like, I I was reading, like, kind of recently, this book, um, and it it, it had, like, a section in it about, like, the early, early stories of Australia. And I was, like, I was stunned. It's, like, it's really, like, quite a a beautiful story. Do you know what I mean? All these, like, prisoners and, you know, slaves and everyone just sort of arrives in Australia. And then it's, like, well, okay, well, you know, you've got, you, you know, this is your new place. Go. It's like whoa, you know. I mean, if you yeah. if you got caught stealing bread in like, you know, bumfuck nowhere in England in some miserable like day in the middle of November and it's grey and raining and you're soaking wet and then they ship you off to Australia and give you a new spot, you'd be like, hmm. And this is the punishment. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's get back to to yeah encryption and and things that yeah. You're more knowledgeable about than uh, me, just, <laughs> me just spouting stupid things about Australia. Uh, so, so with session, you're not using a phone number. Um, do you see phone numbers continuing to exist in the future? Like, are you, do you guys see yourselves as like the, the where things are going to go, or do you think there'll always be a place for phone numbers? Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I. S- I, phone numbers are going to last for a while um, just because they've built up a really, it's like email addresses, right? Like we have better systems like to communicate than email, but we've built up these really kind of rich contact networks that exist through email. Um, and I think for those to go away, uh, suddenly it would be difficult, but it, I don't know if we're talking about like 20 years down the track, then I think we might start to see some significant movement, but then I thought that with email too, and email is still used like in business, like, you know, massively. It's not used so much in like person to person, like communications anymore, like with your friends, you don't really email your friends that much. Um, That has really transitioned more onto um, kind of instant messaging applications. And you are seeing like uh, definitely businesses are starting to adopt more instant messaging applications like Microsoft Teams or Slack. Um, but email still has a really big place. And I think that's going to be similar with mobile phones as well. I think most of our stuff will move over onto messaging applications. Um, and I hope that we move away from like registering everything with a mobile phone number. Um, like we're really trying to make that move, like, or show a way that you can do it where it's not too hard. But I think mobile phones still do make a lot of sense for, other messaging applications that aren't looking for so much anonymity. Um, so I think they'll be around for a while um, and not not to my delight, you know. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I mean, well, email's got. I guess there's like a there is like a more secure version of email. You got Proton Mail or or something like that, um, at least. But yeah, no. I, yeah, the the issue with like the, the issue with the email system is it's kind of broken at the core. Like even if you use a private email client like Proton Mail, um, you know, if you're sending to a Gmail account, then Google is going to be able to see the the contents of the email that you're sending. Um, and the way like the email routing system works, like Google owns so much of it that you end up hitting them almost all the time. So unless you're emailing from like a Proton email to another Proton email, like you're kind of out of luck. And the whole PGP thing that we tried, like, you know, 10 years ago didn't seem to work either to encrypt emails. So yeah, I think that one's going to be around for a while, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, most people don't actually realize what you, what you said there as well about Gmail, about Google reading all the emails because they do. They scan every single every single thing. Um, yep. You know, but only for our own good, of course. Um, <laughs> sell us better products. Um, actually, on that, Definitely. like, what, what is the like? What's the the business model for Session? Like, uh, because like, are you you're not you're not secretly selling all our data out the back door? I hope. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, so session is a uh, like session is registered under the OPTF, and the OPTF is a non-profit um, foundation based out of Australia. So we're not kind of seeking to make any profits from this. Um, our like business is driven by like a constitution of goals which we're trying to achieve, which is basically to provide more privacy um, to people in the world. Um, but we do hope to kind of monetize um, session to a degree. And the way that, that I think we're going to do that is um, mainly through pro features. So there'll be features in the application which you can pay um, a monthly like subscription fee to, to get access to. And that would be stuff like um, larger file size um, limits, um, stuff like being able to host an open group with one click, just a lot of kind of quality of life and um, features for power users. I don't think we'll ever kind of, that there'll always be a, session, a version of session that's free um, and it should contain all of the features that we're using um, in session today. It'll be like the pro kind of features that are, um, you know, behind a subscription fee. So yeah, we're not not planning to do any advertisement or sell any users data and um yeah, we, we, we won't do that. So, yeah. Don't be evil, I think. It's a good, good. <laughs> so, no, you... not actually, not the, the biggest point here is that we don't have the user's data to sell. Like, we, we don't, like, we don't hold a privileged position in the network. It's not like all of the data flows through our servers because the network's decentralized. The data is not even, it doesn't flow through us. So, we don't even have the data to collect or sell to anyone. Mm. So, this kind of, it's, not we can't even be evil if we wanted to you know like <laughs> you know it's really funny i don't know if you're you're familiar with um odyssey the the like blockchain video hosting platform yeah yeah so jeremy kaufman the the ceo who had in the show literally said the ex basically the exact same thing to me about like censoring people on and removing videos on odyssey it was just like we couldn't like we actually couldn't and yeah. like, do you see this being like a trend for, for, for like tech companies now in the next sort of step of things in the, they, like the people who are creating this next generation of, of, of tech that's sort of, yeah, more based on encryption, blockchain, um, these sorts of like, yeah, bits of tech. Is that, is it, is this like, 
is this a better way almost for for companies and and like organizations like yourselves to to make like products now that they can go we you know it's like almost like hands off because like then because then you you know no one can get summoned in front of congress like like zuckerberg and be sat there with all the power because they can just like honestly say we can't do anything about it like is that do you see that being the way things things move yes um and it it's it's freeing like in terms of that you don't have to make a lot of decisions about content moderation as well which is kind of one of the biggest um like the biggest systems that you have to work with like if you're a central like social media type um provider i mean it's less like for us because nearly every like well everything is encrypted in the one-to-ones and closed groups then we have these kind of bigger communities which um do need to be moderated but we don't have we don't give that moderation power to ourselves we essentially give it to whoever runs the server for that community so it's up to them how they want to moderate their um chat and then hopefully the, the idea there is that you see people um with different like you see a kind of broad range of different moderation strategies um that are that are up to the users instead of up to like some central kind of um coordinating body that has like some sort of fact checking or you know whatever um methodology they use on social media to work out what's right and wrong these days um or content policies as well so yeah by by decentralizing the power it means that you don't necessarily have the ability to do this stuff yourself and that means that it it opens up less questions as to what you're actually required to do as well um not that not that that is kind of the main intention like it's it's kind of a side effect of giving people back their um like power to encrypt or power of their own data right like it's not like we're like we're conspiring and like oh how can we create a system that like has no moderation controls or whatever like that's not kind of the intention of what we're doing at session i know some services are trying to do that like specifically focused around unmoderatable con- like um platforms but we're more just like oh, well we're going to encrypt all of the users data because it makes sense and as a side effect of that the moderation capability for us is like extremely low Mm. So when you say the network's decentralized, what do you mean? Mm. So it, essentially it's a network of this, we call it the service node network. So there's 1800 um, service nodes that are all around the world um, in all different countries. So um, Europe, you know, well, Europe's not a country, but <laughs> all different continents, uh, I would say Europe, Australia, um, Asia, um, I think the only continent we don't have thus far is Antarctica, but we're trying to, we're working on it, you know, we're working on it. Um, yeah, so there's there's essentially 1,800 different service nodes. And the way Session works is um, when you generate your key, you're essentially assigned to a group of service nodes, and it's called a swarm. And all of your messages that, all of the messages that belong to you get deposited on that swarm. Um, and then you check that swarm to see if you have new messages. And when you're sending a message to someone else, um, you can look at their public key and work out what swarm they belong to. And when you send messages to that swarm, they check their swarm and they get your messages. So there's no centralized single server like WhatsApp um, or group of servers that WhatsApp controls. These service nodes are controlled by community members um, who stake a bit of crypto- cryptocurrency to be able to run that server. Um, and they get rewarded for for storing the messages and routing data as well. 
Um, so yeah, it's, I think there's, you know, there'd be hundreds of service node operators out of the, out there and thousands of service nodes, um, that are currently operating. And we think it's a much better way to do things than just have the one organization control, like the, all of the servers for the system. So then when, uh, can anyone apply to, to run one of the servers? Yeah, there, there's no application process or anything. You don't have to be approved. Um, you just get the required amount of oxen you can buy that off the market um or you can if you don't have the full amount of oxen you can um, participate in someone else's node as well um which is a little bit it has a little bit of less of an upfront um cost to the user um and then they just run through they'll get access to uh essentially like a server which they can rent um from any vps provider anywhere in the world um you know you could run it in Amazon, you can run it at Google, you can run it at Hetzner, you can run it at OVH, you can, there's servers in all different providers um, right now. Um, and then you just run a few commands, you stake your Oxen and, and that's it, you're providing um, services to the network. So yeah, there's no approval process on KYC or any of that. Um, if you want to contribute uh, resources to the network, you just have to have that required Oxen stake. That's the only thing. So Oxen, is that your your token or, or cryptocurrency yeah so like when we're talking about session we don't really mention oxen that much because we find it's you know people who want to use a messaging application don't necessarily want to know all of the cryptocurrency aspects behind it um they're just interested in getting more anonymity in their messenger and we've tried to kind of separate these two things out but the service node network is incentivized it's an incentivized um, layer so all of these service nodes that are running um, they had, they need an auction, the auction cryptocurrency, and that's, we created that as well, um, to, to run that service node. And then they get rewarded in the auction cryptocurrency as well for providing services to the network. So it's kind of like a, um, self-sustaining, um, network where auction is given out to providers and they need auction to be able to, um, you know, kind of stake to the network and provide services too. So yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's, it's essentially a crypto incentives network that's behind, um, all of session and powers the session app. Okay, was is Oxen um, like? Is there anything like particularly like unique about about the yeah about the, the core? So yeah, we we we've spent a lot of time actually building out the core of the um, Oxen coin. So it's also got a privacy focus to it. Um, it's originally a fork of Monero, which is one of the bigger privacy coins out there. Mm -hmm. Um, so it provides anonymity when you're sending transactions. So that for those people who might be like more familiar with Bitcoin, um, when you send a Bitcoin transaction, the address that you're sending to the amount that you're sending and your address as well are all exposed on the Bitcoin blockchain forever. Um, and they can be searchable by anyone. So if you connect your, your identity with your Bitcoin account, which a lot of people do when they KYC to sign up for exchanges, um, you're essentially linking your transactions to yourself and linking the tr your transactions to the person you're sending them to as well. Um, Monero has this system called ring signatures where instead of kind of directly sending to someone else, you um, sign as a group of people. So it's got some plausible deniability built into it. It could be one of 11 people that are sending that transaction instead of the, knowing the exact person who it is. And they do a few other things with stealth addresses to kind of maintain um, the privacy aspect of the blockchain. Um, so yeah, we're a fork of them. So we took um, some of their technology 
Um, when we started off and we also added some interesting tech like instant transactions and we moved to proof of stake as well um, because we thought that the energy usage in in, um, in Monero was a little bit high or, or it, w- it was using a lot of electricity for essentially no purpose, you know, when we could secure the chain through other means. Um, so, yeah, we've made some strides on on the blockchain front as well. Like, what do you make of the whole proof of stake versus proof of work like debate? Because obviously this is this is raging at the minute with um yeah so like yeah what do you what do you make? I think like the the argument that like Bitcoin is causing like all of our like global like warming woes is like way overblown like <laughs> and it's kind of cringe worthy like the kind of stuff that like the World Economic Forum and stuff is saying recently like I I really don't think it's that big of a like player in in terms of like global warming but i also think that uh it doesn't need like i think that it doesn't need to be proof of work proof of work like maybe bitcoin does like i think it's okay for bitcoin to stay proof of work but i think nearly every other chain is going to go to proof of stake just because i think they're going it's going to be more economically secure for them and also i think there's going to start to be this argument being made by like I think the word is like ESG, like environmental, social governance or something like that. Um, but like essentially like all of these big investment companies are being pressured by people to be more environmentally friendly, right? And these investment companies are going to be the ones like pumping more money into crypto as they realize that it's the future of, it's not, not only the future of finance, quote unquote, um, but also kind of the future of the web um, and um, all like decentralized tech as well. So if all of that investment money is flowing into um, cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, which will go proof of stake soon, I think it's going to be harder for um, like the traditional proof of work cryptocurrencies to compete just on, even if none of this, like this stuff is necessarily true about like Bitcoin, you know, uh, contributing significantly to uh to global warming like the narrative out there right now is that it is true yeah. and the in the esg stuff like is going to have such a big impact on what um the biggest kind of firms will invest in and i think that's going to have a really big effect on the markets as well so i think like positioning yourself uh more towards uh proof of stake cryptocurrencies is going to be a good um investment decision and potentially a good security uh, decision as well um, over the next kind of couple of years. Yeah. I'm just Googling because I to double check this before I start quoting it. Um, haha, here it is. Lovely. Okay. So it's estimated now that the Bitcoin network is used in 58.5% renewable energy. Um, so, yeah. which is, that, yeah, that, that, I'm probably rising as well. Either- that study is like published by like the mining council, like the Bitcoin mining council. So I'm not entirely sure how like it's a fair you know, point. Honestly, Bitcoin being there, the maybe Bitcoin like it's pretty, mm. yeah, it's perhaps a little bit uh, biased. But I do believe that there's like a lot of um, renewable energy mm. being used in Bitcoin mining, and I think like you know like the the fears are overblown, definitely. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think there there is. I think like if you're looking at how to position yourself in the market, I would say like proof of stake cryptocurrencies like Ethereum are going to look very good in the future just because 
the big investors, I think, will have to stick to what like their their kind of sub investors are calling out for, which is like this environmental approach to investing. Because they're they're all starting to like divest from like oil companies, for example. Like they're all starting to pull their investments from oil and coal companies, I think. Um and try to invest them in more like renewable tech. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we'll see where it goes. It's interesting actually to like on that side of things, I saw the guy was the head of Aston Martin talking about why he thinks we shouldn't go to electric cars that we should be looking at biofuels and hydrogen fuel cells or liquid hydrogen um, as the, yeah, the energy for the future. And I was just like, wow, that's because everyone will read the headline and be like, he thinks we shouldn't take electric cars. Be like, oh, the damn auto industry. <laughs> and instead, he's like suggesting something else. So I'm, I'm curious as to what's going to happen with, with the proof of work, proof of stake thing. Because I've also seen quite a lot of suggestion about how that excess energy can be used, like either to generate more electric or to heat people's homes as well, I've seen, which is, yeah, I'm going to, which seems incredible that they that the people are like, being smart enough to reclaim that excess heat energy in order to like heat their home and then they're mining some Bitcoin too, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. But um, so then, yeah, I wanted to go back just a little bit then to this uh, closed source and open or, or yeah, open source and closed source software um, idea. Like, is there any risk to, to software being open source in this sense? Hmm. I don't think there's really much risk uh, from having your source code open source. Potentially there is risk in terms of that you're taking sometimes contribution from external contributors. So you might put all your code up online and then you could potentially have an attack where say a government or a hacker like intentionally um, like introduces a vulnerability into your code disguised as like a as like a legitimate contribution. Um, but I think that in closed source companies, they'll have the same issue as well. Like for example, um, you know, if the Chinese government really wanted a backdoor in WhatsApp, like they could go, like they could train people up in universities and send them to go work at WhatsApp and introduce stuff that looked like legitimate code that actually causes bugs in the code um, that have the same effect as a backdoor. So like, yeah, there's definitely, there's pathways in both. And I think the vast majority of like the space in open source software makes, makes a lot of security sense. Like, yeah, you freaked me out a wee bit there. I hadn't even considered that they would go to those lengths, but like I've had enough people on this show talking about China to know that they would totally go to those lengths in order to do stuff, but that's wild. Oh yeah. I don't doubt that they probably have. Like, and it's the same with the US as well. Like the US would have people working in Chinese, like deep inside Chinese organizations as well mm. that are either extracting information out of them or potentially introducing um, vulnerabilities which can be exploited at a later point. Like it's happening on, it's happening on both sides um, of the like cyber espionage um, space. Yeah. Oh no, I don't doubt that at all. I mean, because the US government is famously um, completely innocent and never does anything shady, underhanded, or illegal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like most governments, to be quite honest. Probably all governments, to be honest. But anyway, there we go. We've stuck with them. <laughs> the, uh, so like the, the... When you're talking well, at about... at least you get to vote. They don't, they don't get to vote in China, you know. No, so. they can vote. Just, you know, for one party. 
yeah yeah <laughs> uh, well i mean yeah come to northern ireland and go to a safe seat you may as well just vote for one party we're in england as well yeah, I mean, with true. the system we got so yeah well obviously this is not me bitching we have it fucking made compared to the chinese like don't don't get me don't get this confused <laughs> for me being like well you know we're pretty much as bad as china and all these people <laughs> no anyway yeah <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different a little bit different yeah we're incredibly lucky i think is the the key here because we can sit and have this conversation without someone coming to bash the door down like the yeah the uh i got i got horrified by i had um joanna uh shui or shui i can't even remember how to pronounce the surname anyway uh the author of china unbound and she was telling me the story of this um chinese student who had left um china to go study in canada and they started an anonymous Twitter account using a VPN with a fake name and the wrong gender. And they <laughs> retweeted two anti-China things and their family started getting threats inside China. So oh, like, shit. yeah, man, that's, uh, that's the, that, that's the, yeah, that's, as, that's how far some people will go. I think is the, the scary part about it. But like, so yeah, the last thing I kind of wanted to ask about was, when whenever these debates are happening about encryption and about you know private messaging and like what the government should and should be allowed to see etc cetera, etc cetera, like rights to privacy the there's always this suggestion that the government are going to people like apple or google or, or facebook whatsapp um and saying hey you know build us a back door so we can you know you know it's all safe and encrypted but just give us a little sneaky way in um like is that like realistically even possible whilst maintaining any any level of security or is that just them pretending that they can do this i mean it it's technically it's it's possible like you can definitely like encrypt for two parties if you wanted to like one being the i think this is like the this is usually what they're proposing when they're saying like backdoor. They're usually proposing that like, say when a user encrypts a message, they'll encrypt like one copy for the person that they're talking to, and then they'll encrypt another copy for like the government key, which the, which can be read by like anyone who has access to that key. And that's really where the issue comes in. Anyone who has access to that key. Um, and governments are notoriously bad at keeping information like like that secret you know for example like say you have like you know like what level do you allow people to have access to that key and if that key is leaked for example to say to hackers or a, another government like we were just talking about like there's spies in all of these organizations right so if china has access to that key then they can read all of your um private messages now and the government and then you also just think about like you know it's come out that in all of these like systems, surveillance systems that they have, there's massive misuse just by like ordinary everyday police, like, you know, police that are using this to try and like find out their ex-wife's location or something like that, like, or read their ex-wife's like text messages. You have to consider that like every single person that has access to this key is a person, right? Like they have their own wants, like desires, needs and putting them in that position of power is not something that you generally want to do, even if it is technically possible. Um, so yeah, that's that's you know kind of how I would answer that um, question. Yeah, I mean, not everyone has 
you know, Uncle Ben or Aunt May to give them like the with great power comes great responsibility speech. You know, we're not yeah. we're not all that lucky. <laughs> um, yeah. So then, yeah. So uh, just to, to to finish up, then uh, why should people choose session? Like, if someone's sitting here thinking, yeah, you know, maybe maybe WhatsApp's not the safest place for me to be sending my my messages, um, or I would like a little more privacy. Like, why should they choose session, and how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so I think if if you've seen what's been happening over the last like kind of five or ten years with surveillance by governments, it should be pretty obvious um, to you the kind of use case um, of session, which is simply to provide you with more anonymity and security in your conversations. Now, that might not be something that you always need access to, but it's really important to know that the tool exists. Um, and that you can download and use it uh, whenever you want. So we have um, we have distribution on the iOS App Store. We have distribution on the Google Play Store. Um, we also have a desktop application too, which is available on Mac, Mac Linux, and, and Windows. Which we should um, say actually, so yeah. we're using right now to do this this uh, this conversation. So as a little gimmick. Yeah. So we're, we're we we just recently implemented end to end encrypted calls. Um, so we're having a call on session right now. I'm on using session desktop and I assume you're using session desktop as well. So I wouldn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, download the applications. I, if you go to getsession.org, um, that's where all of the applications are at. And, um, you know, just keep us kind of, you know, you could use us now if you feel like you really want that um, access to that anonymity. But I feel like for a lot of people, um, session will kind of sit in the back of their mind for a little bit. And this is how it was with me with um, Signal when it originally came out. I was like, yeah, Signal is a really cool application. I don't need it right now. But uh, like, you know, I think it was in a couple of months time. I was like, okay, I need this application now. And I went and downloaded it and I was like, yeah, this is really cool. Um, so, so I think session is kind of sits in the, in that same thing, like similar to a tool like Tor, um, where, you know, if you need that extra anonymity, um, it's, it's a tool that's there and you can use it. So yeah. Um, go to get session. We're on Twitter. We're on, um, you know, all the social medias, Mastodon, YouTube. Um, I think we're on a few of the decentralized ones now too, as well. So you can check us out there. Um, but yeah. It'd be be cool to see some of you more um some of your users coming on and, and using the session app. And I've got my um session ID up on Twitter and a few other spaces as well, my GitHub too. So if you want to reach out and message me, you don't have any friends on um session, I'll I'll be your first friend. Yeah. Oh well you were my first friend on session there. So that's exciting. <laughs> um but yeah, man. Um really appreciate your time. Thanks for yeah. All the info cleared up a lot of things, I hope, for myself. Well, you definitely did for me and hopefully for people listening. Hopefully there was something interesting for them. So yeah, thanks for your time. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.